0: It's about uh, storytelling, the manipulation of using another person's body language to tell them the story that you want to tell. It's very much a two-way story, uh, two-way street. I think most people, like when you see cinema or you read a book or something, it's a one-way street. The person is telling you something, but like DJs or musicians or when you're telling a, a film to somebody or a story to somebody, you use their body language to tell them what you want to tell them. And if it's a studio head and he's kind of looking at his watch out of the corner of his eye you introduce the crazy chick that walks in with an uzi and shoots people in a mcdonald's or whatever so you kind of pace it up and slow it down depending on the body language if they're leaning forward you know you can milk it if they're looking back and pick it up so it's about that and a guy who has an agenda uses the body language of a little girl to tell her a tale because he needs something.
1: Hey, everybody. Episode 143 of your favorite movie podcast, Not a Bomb. This is where we go back and look at movies that bomb theatrically or didn't do very well with the critics. Brad, this is take two of a film that you picked many years ago, I think, towards the beginning.
0: It was towards the beginning. Um, I had gone over to the wall of DVDs. Actually, that's not true. Um, I have them in a thing that's underneath a bed and Cause DVDs are, most of them are put away and I went to go open the fall, which was uh, released in 2006 and 2008 and um, uh, went to go open it and the uh, DVD was gone. So I could not watch it and you could not stream this thing. It's Troy. If anyone ever accused us as, of picking movies to just pump up our downloads this would be the the episode that I would say, sir, we're not doing that because this is impossible to find and see. But it is 2006's The Fall. It's and yes, we yeah. tried to watch it. I couldn't find mine. A listener named Philip, thank you, Philip. He sent me a disc uh in the mail, and I've had it under lock and key for like a year, and now we decided to finally do it.
1: I- I'm excited. So we have a guest this week, and our guest almost <laughs> didn't get to be a guest because they they couldn't find the film. But I'm I am happy to report our, our good friend Jose did actually get a chance to watch this film. But more importantly, we're just we're just happy to have you back, Jose. How you been? I've I've been good. It's uh
2: it's been a busy week and today was Awful at work. But anyway, uh, but you, were,
0: you were quite you were silent today on our text chain. I was, yeah, I was, say. I,
2: I was silent for a good two days on the text chain, mm-hmm. actually. um, But I got an assist from our good friend, Randy, who actually owns a physical copy of the out of print Blu-ray because I went on eBay and I think I saw one copy for 150 brand new. Mm-hmm. And then the next tiered price for that was two
1: sixty. Yes, you can find a couple of editions for this on Blu-ray. I think there was actually a, a, a nice Korean edition out there uh, as well. But you yep. will at least spend eighty to ninety dollars, and that's that's probably for a used copy.
0: Yeah. So if you're at a thrift shop and you see Dogma in the Fall, grab them both.
1: <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, multiple copies. If you see them, <laughs> I want to say I bought my Blu-ray copy from a video store uh, years ago. So I've I've had I've had a Blu-ray copy for a while. But yeah, it's 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 difficult to find. It's not on any of the major streaming platforms either. And I, I did anybody even look to see if you could rent this thing from Maybe a not, from a digital source, no
0: VOD or anything like that.
1: Does anybody know why? Okay. I I tried to look this up and I could not find out why. Uh, this just wasn't readily available, which means I'm sure there's something to do some, with the rights.
0: Yeah, maybe like because it's radical media and absolute entertainment, I believe. So maybe someone and it's roadside attraction. So maybe there's some licensing something there. One of these companies no longer exists, and they don't know how to pay out the royalties or whatever. So they don't.
1: Yeah, I. So, so this is one of those that when when you start using the internet and are typing in like, why, why is the fall not available anymore? You start to get into these forums and a couple of forums I I had run into, you see this comment of, well, this is why piracy (laughs) is okay. Right. (laughs) I, I wanted to get your guys' opinion on that real quick. So have you run across that elusive film and there's, there's no way to get it Outside of maybe uh, an old technology format like VHS, Laserdisc, Betamax, sixteen millimeter—I don't know—but <laughs> you, you just you video CD in Hong Kong. I mean, that was a big thing, right? Uh, you, you can't find it, but you are like, you know what? I am okay. I am gonna, I am gonna f- stream it. I am gonna get it illegally. Go buy a bootleg copy. Have, have you found yourself doing that um, lately or uh, ever? And I mean, what's your opinion on that? You think it's okay?
0: So I I justify it sometimes if I own it already. So Hard Boiled, for instance, um, I own it on DVD. The DVD is okay. Then there's another edition that has some other different commentary, and it's got this stuff on it. But I want it all in one package, and I want, like, the best uh, resolution. So I bought a bootleg of Hard Boiled, John Woo's Hard Boiled, um, it actually came from the guy, which is a miracle. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm talking about Troy. Oh yeah. Uh,
1: he's no longer around. I, yeah, he's I, I no longer hope he's around. in jail cause he ripped off a lot of people, but
0: yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, this guy, he sells bootlegs <laughs> on the internet and he's ripped people off millions of Ooh, times, but anyway,
1: not good. Not good.
0: Yeah. Uh, but so I owned hard boiled, like on two or three different copies. This one copy kind of brought everything together on a blu-ray set, and I bought it. Um, and I feel like, okay, I'm okay doing it that way because i already own it and i already own all kind of the stuff that's on this but i just want it in one disc, you know like i don't want to <laughs> have to do this disc for this part and this disc for that part um but like on a wider conversation too like preservation of stuff sometimes is really difficult like even you, like you look at it like in the video game space like some of the stuff like you can't it's trapped on like the 3DO, like whoever had like a 3DO, you know, games are like trapped on stuff that you'll never be able to play anymore. Um, I think we need a better way to preserve things. And like the fall is a perfect example. It's, It should be something that we should just be able to, um, I, I don't know, get whenever we, we want and see whenever we want. Um, but that's kind of one of those perks of having lots of movies is – if it's out of print and you already have it, you don't have to worry about yeah, it.
1: You watch it whenever you want, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I I, I just bought a AI program, Troy, that kind of helps up converts um, media to 4K. It uses like this weird algorithm thing. It it basically converts things that are in 480 to to 4K. I'm going to put the fall through that at some point in time. It takes a long time for it to like render out, but I want to see what this thing looks like in 4K.
1: Oh wow! Okay. What about you? They gonna start selling? No, I won't start. Allegedly, we'll, we'll sell it. Allegedly, I like. I, I will allegedly not sell it. I don't know what that means. We have an attorney here, so yeah. you could hire him. <laughs> Brad's AI is gonna take over the world. The feeds it into the internet. <laughs> what about you, USA? I mean, are do you buy any bootlegs or? Uh, okay. Have, you, have so you sold any bootlegs? I don't. Do, you do I, that I, on that
0: side. We're not going to. Uh, no crimes admitted here.
2: Okay. No crimes admitted. I uh, pleading the fifth. Actually. So w- when I started college, I dated um, a considerably older man um, who you don't say. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> also, he kind of looked like Gary Busey. If you guys. Um, yeah,
1: I know. Okay. His face right now. All right. Um, so <laughs> I want to hear that story. Uh, we might. Okay.
0: Now so we know I, why you like the ginger dead man so much. I, yeah. Um,
2: so I so I, dated, I dated this older gentleman and his, his big deal was just sending me bootleg videos or we would go over to his place and watch bootleg videos of anything you can imagine. Things from like uh, Tetsuo the Iron Man um, to uh, like weird Japanese um, J horror, everything um i mean he even got me a bootleg copy of like showgirls right i mean literally the day after i saw it in the theaters he plunked one right in my hand or whatever um so i saw a lot of stuff bootleg wise but this is weird i'm very much against pirating or downloading illegal uh bootlegs of films because i think that the money should go to the the company and even if it's a $2 blu-ray or something it's still money that goes back to the people that created it so i'm kind of against that
0: what if they don't exist anymore
2: uh well i still strangely would <laughs> would still try to seek out the media unfortunately now i strangely confession i do not have the same feeling about um music scores <laughs> so if i had wow. bought every single hmm. music score that i have on my computer I would be poor i would be in the poor house i don't know how what I ended up what makes music two.
1: different than uh, the i smell film. hypocrisy yeah
2: uh you do smell hypocrisy it's you can plead the fifth if you want hypocrisy. that's fine <laughs> i uh i honestly i don't know where i started drawing that line but yeah okay there you go <laughs> i I'm um, as as for films that I am looking for right now that I cannot find early Gregoraki is impossible to find. So like the living end or um, totally fucked up. That was his second movie ever. And then the, uh, the full unrated director's cut of the doom generation. Oh, okay. Um, So I've been on the lookout for those things. And I think that uh, the recent Sundance, they screened the, unrated doom generation. And I am praying that it's going to be released on, on physical media soon, but
1: I'm sure, I mean, with all the private labels and stuff like that, I mean, it's, uh, other countries have different licensing for certain media. So you'll see things get released in other countries and not the U S but I think it's just a distribution issue. Right. And other times a film may sit in limbo because when they go back and want to re-release it, if it has a, uh, I would say in-depth pop score or yeah, there's a lot music of music to it. The
0: reason, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, there's, there's <laughs> a, t- a television show that Tabitha loved and I had to um, find an import of it on DVD, but it was a uh, two guys, a girl in the pizza place, the Ryan Reynolds yeah. TV show. And one Maybe of the,
0: Butthead is like that too.
1: Yeah. And, and one of the reasons why that television show has a hard time getting released over here is just because of the music rights um, for that, that series, they don't want to pay that or fork it over. I, my father, when we go to the VH, uh, go rent VHSs and stuff like that, he was notorious. He would rent it and then copy it. copy it, but he would put like three movies on one tape. So he'd do the SLP mode. So we had this nice <laughs> little library of, now, if you ever watched a videotape with three movies on it, the quality is, is uh, it's not there. But it, I, I do remember having a lot of fun just going back and uh, watching films like the second generation films. And th- and then even early Hong Kong um, trading, you would mm-hmm. get fifth or sixth copies or generations. A lot of times without subtitles of films that were never going to see the light of day. Now this is back in the eighties, early nineties when Jackie Chan, you know, hadn't done rumble in the Bronx and stuff like that. Nobody even knew who Samuel hung was. Uh, none of the Hong Kong directors had come over here, you know, with uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. So, a lot of times, you'd have to get the laserdisc, and then convert it to VHS, and then you trade that with other collectors. And uh, I don't know if you'd want me to tell you this, but there's a there's a comic book artist that we've mentioned before, uh, and he and I used to trade. Uh, he he worked for DC. He he was a big name, and he was a big Hong Kong uh, film addict as well. And I knew him, and we used to trade uh, VHS copies of Hong Kong films. Cause he, he would buy the laser disc, I buy the laser disc and then we just swap. So we, you know, do recording. So today it's, I'm always surprised when something isn't available because if you think about the streaming platforms as well as these boutique labels, like vinegar syndrome, uh, severin, uh, umbrella, I think is sort of a, a new player now mm-hmm. out of That's Australia. I, I feel like everything is out there that you could possibly want. But there's there's always a set of films like uh, Mr. Frost with Jeff Goldblum, this little horror film. I th- I think that's out of print. I I have a laser disc of it, but I have never seen a Blu-ray. And I don't think it got released DVD over here. Short Time with Dabney Coleman, which was this great action film from the nineties. Oh god, I love that movie. Yeah, I've got a laser disc one. copy. But uh,
0: Livewire is really hard to find.
1: Yeah. Uh, It it amazes me how many movies out there that I either have on VHS or Laserdisc or even video CD. There's tons of Hong Kong films. Hong Kong was really bad about film preservation because they Mm. shot so many of them. And I don't think they even thought about outside of, you know, preserving anything beyond its theatrical release or its video CD or DVD market or VHS market. And that was it, right? But, uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy to me how many Tysing tapes or... Laserdiscs or just VHS, just you name it. Right, it's laying around. I'm like, well, at some point, somebody's going to release this. I mean, Roddy Piper and Billy Blanks made two of the best action films that are Lethal Weapon clones, and I think the UK put them out on DVD, but the US hasn't seen them outside of VHS and Laserdisc. Uh, back in action, tough and deadly. So, but those are those are titles I guarantee. Vinegar Syndrome. Is, hey guys, if you're if you're listening. Stop what you're doing and put back in action, tough and deadly out on Blu-ray special edition with your, your cool slipcase. But, uh,
0: oh, I, I just want to mention that AI, uh, rendering thing I was talking about is called it's Topaz labs, T O P A Z Topaz labs. Um, you can buy it for like, and you just what, run,
1: run like a, like a MP4 video through it and it's going to mm-hmm. convert it and everything.
0: Yep. Wow. Yep. I might have it's to pricey, but it's kind of cool. We,
1: we might have a project when I come visit Brad, I'll, okay. I'll bring some files. We're okay. getting short. <laughs> we're getting short time in 4k. <laughs> uh, when, also, also, by the way, my Gary Busey daddy,
2: um, I think he was also recording stuff from like laser disc or imported laser discs. That's how I saw things like sex and Zen, naked weapon, oh, yeah. all those Hong Kong movies. Like they just blew my mind. Yeah. So yeah. I was
0: just thinking about it too. When you recorded like three videos on one cassette, mm-hmm. did it do like eight frames a second instead of 24? Is that how it did it?
1: I'm not yeah. sure. Instead of getting
0: 24 a second, you yeah. only got eight?
1: Probably. I mean, it moved,
2: it, it moved slowly. While yeah.
1: Yeah. You know. yeah. So yeah. much oh grain. Gosh. So much oh. grain. And, and <laughs> it they look terrible. But I mean, there's a nostalgia factor going back and watching those. Because my mom still has all those videotapes and every once in a while I'll just pop one in when I'm over at her house. I'm like, man, I can't believe I watched Commando <laughs> full frame with all this grain like eighteen dozen times. But you know, if you didn't want to rent it, dad had a VHS copy of it. Well, let, let's talk about the fall. One that um I, I guess instead of saying, Is it a bomb? The question we may have is if you really want to see this film. Is it worth putting down that cold, hard cash of $80 to $150 it on Blu-ray? I, I think the DVD is even like in the $80 range, but mm-hmm. we'll get there. Uh, Brad, how about you take us back? This one has sort of an odd release schedule, I think. It, it
0: does. It does. So initially shown at TIFF in 2006, that was September 9th of 2006, doesn't see a US, a US release until May 30th of 2008 so two years later um with a reported budget of 30 million dollars a lot of that is from the director's own pocket so remember that when we talk about uh, that Maybe
1: why it hasn't been released outside of its initial you know run
0: yeah and so total box office gross is um it's a little bit mm, i don't i don't know here guys i i feel bad for this guy because we have total box office run we have domestic 2.26 million dollars and internationally of 1.4 for a grand total of 3.669 million dollars so think about that yeah just think aye. about that real quick what that means <sighs> um now we yeah, know this, why he
2: didn't work for quite
0: some time. Yeah. And, and, and broke. we'll get into it, but like he was, he did the sell. He did a lot of uh, video um, directing a lot of that. He did those jobs to basically finance this film. It's, I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's kind of sad. I feel bad for the guy because, you know, this was his passion project and it basically kind of failed. Um, yeah, so um, so opening weekend, it kind of has two opening weekends too. So May 9th, it opens to nine theaters, so not really wide. The widest it goes, well, second widest, but it's kind of wide release is May 30th. It opens in 109 theaters. So we'll go with the first opening day. It makes $79,000. But the per screen average or per theater average, sorry, is $8,885, which is actually pretty good. Like normally films are probably like three to five is pretty good. This is almost nine. So pretty good. Um, Yeah, that's good enough for 34th place. Again, not really fair because it's in nine theaters. Like we could probably get a film open in nine theaters if we really wanted to. Um, <laughs> but some of the films that you could have, um, that were opening that weekend or that beat it that weekend, Iron Man. So the, the, the Marvel cinematic universe starts now. Oh boy. Wow. Uh, what happens in Vegas, which I believe is an Ashton Kutcher film. So Cameron. No, Diaz. Thank you. Yeah. Oh,
2: come on. It was actually funny.
0: Mm- was it?
2: <laughs> was it Jose? Ashton Kutcher
0: is going to be in forever jail for Troy and I because he was in My Boss's Daughter. Yeah. that movie is atrocious.
1: It is okay, a hate I, crime.
2: I agree that movie is terrible. But like, just married, mm. no strings attached. Mm. Dude, where's my car?
1: Oh boy. Okay.
0: Yeah. <sighs> okay. Uh, Speed Racer, which is previous episode. Uh, Made of Racer. Honor. Baby Mama, forgetting Sarah Marshall. Uh, Harold Ukumar escaped from Guantanamo Bay, the yes. Forbidden Kingdom, Nibs Island, Red Belt, which I like. Red Belt, mm-hmm. Prom Night, Twenty One, and The Visitor are some other of the films. Um, Forbidden Kingdom, Jackie Chan, Jet Li, Jackie Chan. Jet Li. Jet Li. Yep. yep.
1: I love that movie. I like how he glosses it's, over that and goes to Red Belt.
2: Uh, <laughs> well, Red Belt's pretty good too. It's I like good. good uh, it's
1: not Forbidden Kingdom, but it's okay. Not for, yes. Okay. Well, so, right? if you think yeah. about that list of films that you just read to me at that time period, if you're a studio and you're seeing kind of what people are buying tickets for at market, it makes total sense to me not to release this movie in a wide format.
0: Oh, there's no, why they chose a summer release for this thing anyway is baffling. I mean, I, I don't know when you say, Hey, let's release this thing, but
1: yeah, yeah, not, I mean, not in the summer. There's
0: marketing on it. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I, I
1: guarantee this is just a question of, uh, from an advertising perspective, like, what do you do with it kind of thing?
0: Yeah, exa- exactly. But, you know, we How usually you say- I do even market
1: it, you know? Yeah.
0: Because <sighs> if you're, you're saying our budget, our production budget's 30, your marketing and advertising budget, budget is 30, it's not 30 for this. I guarantee you it's like 0.5 production budget. It's probably 15 at most. And that's probably even stretching it. So, um, I
1: guarantee there's no way they spent $15 million.
0: No, I, yeah, there's no, I, if they spent a million dollars, I'd be surprised. Um, critically, the fall sits at a 62% with the critics. Do we guess that the audience is higher or lower than that?
1: I'm gonna say lower, lower.
0: Wow, you are wrong. Really much higher. The audience is at an 85%. Really? That is oh, with f- over a hundred thousand reviews. Finally
2: the some fall. good news. Wow. Everything you're telling me broke my heart. But finally, some good news that it's yeah, actually that is
1: really good news. People. I, I that's, that's yeah.
0: I was I was shocked. I thought when I saw critics at sixty two, I was like, Oh, the
1: audience will probably be split 50-50. I do know Roger Ebert championed the heck out of this thing when it or came so. out. I sure did. Yeah. And he I was sure doing did. interviews with the director uh there's there's some great articles um that he wrote about the director but uh yeah th- this one surprised me you i would have thought with this type of film audiences would have shied away from it or just said hey i i don't know about this thing
0: yeah so um films you could have seen may of 2008 again we have iron man iron man made eight uh, seven hundred and eighty three million dollars
1: that's unbelievable
0: yeah And now we're sitting here watching Ant-Man and whatever make struggle to make like 200 million. Yeah,
1: it's 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 it will be a miracle for it to hit 500 million worldwide.
0: Yeah. Uh, Made of Honor, Red Belt. Uh, Let's see what
1: was made of
2: what's made of honor. Is that Jennifer
1: Lopez Lopez movie? Yeah. Okay. yes, got it.
0: Um, Yes, you
1: do. Of course you do.
0: What else we got? Uh, Speed Racer. We've already said what happens in Vegas. What happens in Vegas made two hundred forty-five million dollars. If you want to kill yourself, Uh, (laughs) Chronicles of Narnia made half a billion dollars. Wow, that's the uh, Prince Caspian. Yeah, and yeah. Oh man, May twenty-second, Indiana Jones in the Crystal, the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yeah, 900, $900 million came so out on don't my birthday. If you think that shit sucks, it made $900 million. Um, Cameron loved it. it. We saw it the twice. Yeah, nuke the fridge and sex in the city made half a billion dollars. Oh my God. I was part of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. baby. Love I, that
1: movie. <laughs> I can say I did not contribute to that film's success. So I'm very proud of that. Yeah.
0: So again, weird release, weird, everything about this thing. It's impossible to find. It's crazy. So go ahead, Troy.
1: Okay. No, I, I, go strangely,
2: ahead. Strangely, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to that list of films. It, it's almost like there was a shift in, like, entertainment or something. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, just the way – I mean, you you mentioned Forbidden Kingdom as well and just Iron Man. And then we were thinking of, like, rethinking our tent poles and stuff. It was kind of that's, – that's a
1: weird, pivotal – Moment. It it is interesting that this it's would like come out. like big
0: box is here to stay now. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But I but a title that we've talked about to you mentioned which was Speed Racer, in thinking about the the visual artistry of that film in the fall. It, it is kind of curious that you still had people really sort of testing the waters of the visual medium and even with technology and everything else uh trying to do something different than the mainstream and i i I love the fact that that still exists today so you'll have these temple movies and even in some of the temple films something will come along and go we're going to do something different like the film that sticks out to me last year that i felt just visually was super different it was it totally shocked me how good it was and how um i don't know how gorgeous it looked and i would have never expected this and it was uh puss in boots that animated <laughs> film, the sequel, I that would that would definitely make my top ten of last year. Just based on somebody took a property and really did something different in its animation style, et cetera. But it's nice to see that in that month we would have the fall and Speed Racer kind of trying to do the same thing. Uh, Both, fa- both failing, Boots but yeah, sure. <laughs> well, Poison Boots, Poison Boots is made a no. Well, I used though. Speed
0: Racer yeah. and the Fall, both big bombs. So. Yeah.
2: Uh, Jose, Cousin boost? it's nominated, isn't it? This I think year? so. Best, yeah. best
0: animated, yep. Yeah, yeah. You're the guy who did a four hour. I, I a know. To... Yeah,
1: didn't yes. didn't you just like do a five six hour episode on the Oscars uh, or something?
0: Uh, Yes, and and
2: guess what? Yeah. it's my week to edit. Oh <laughs> boy. Well, yeah, I know.
1: <laughs> before you jump into the editing bay, how about you give us a little bit of information about the people? Let's see. You call it below the line, right? We call it behind the camera. So I'm going to hand it over to you, Jose. You know, let's talk about the people who made this thing.
2: Yeah. So, um, just a couple producers: uh, Ajit Singh and Tarsim Singh. Tarsim Singh is our director, I believe. Ajit Singh is related to him, maybe his brother. Um, Ajit Singh also produced Mirror Mirror, which is also on Tarsim's resume. Lionel Cop is one of the pro. Uh, co-producers as well. He served as the production manager and supervisor on this. And when you think about it, this film appears to have been shot, I believe, in something like 21 different countries. Mm-hmm. So if you're a, pr- a production manager and supervisor, yeah, good luck. Um and the other producer is Nico Sultanakis. He uh actually was previously married to the costume designer of this movie, who we will get to. Um, when I say previously married, it's because unfortunately she passed away. Uh, but he is an associate producer on a lot of Singh's other films. So that's The Cell, Immortals, Mirror, Mirror, uh, Selfless, and then the miniseries Emerald City, which was uh, debuted on sci fi. He's also a music video director for The Cranberries and shares writing credits on this as well. So our writers are Nico Sol- Sultantakis, as I mentioned, Tarsim Singh. And this name, Dan Gilroy. If you are a fan of screenwriters, he is a brilliant sc- screenwriter. Gilroy is the son of Pulitzer winning playwright, Frank Gilroy. His brother, Tony is also a screenwriter and a director. He is married to the gorgeous Renee Russo. Um, as a screenwriter, he started with 1992's Freejack, followed it up with... Oh, Freejack is
0: dope as hell.
2: <laughs> yep. And... Um, isn't Mick, Jag- Mick Jagger's in that amelio estevez, uh, Emilio estevez Rene russo um it had an interesting
1: poster because it was foil it wasn't a regular 27 by 40 but it was a really yeah. thick uh foil blue and black poster I that's have, a, like, a jeff couple of those. murphy
0: film also mm-hmm. <laughs> jeff with a g which i don't like but oh anyway.
2: <laughs> sorry uh he followed up with the chasers two for the money which um had al pacino um and then of course this film he has a story credit for real steel with uh, hugh jackman uh, wrote the born legacy kong skull island and he's also uh, helped to develop and wrote three of the episodes for andor which is the disney plus star wars spin-off television show he is the director and writer of three very notable films nightcrawler which is amazing if you've ever seen yes. that uh renee russo and jake gillenhall are in that roman j israel which also earned denzel washington its star and oscar nomination and then the netflix direct velvet buzzsaw which let me just tell you that was an experience to watch (laughs) it's (laughs) quite an odd film um our music is by krishna levy 67 credits but mainly for foreign films but i really did like the score in this film our dp is colin watkinson He's worked up through the ranks, mainly television um, films and shorts. He worked second unit on Sing's Immortals, Mirror Mirror, and Entourage. He's the DP for this film. He has also been the DP for music videos for artists like Ice Cube, Pink, Avril Avril Lavigne, Katy Perry, Paul McCartney. He's also been the DP for TV shows like Entourage, Emerald City, the failed pilot for Wonder Woman starring Adrian Pilecki. If you've you've ever seen that or even seen scenes from it, I think it was destined to fail, unfortunately. It's pretty terrible, Um, yeah. 19 episodes as a DP and one director credit for The Handmaid's Tale. Strangely, he has not been a DP for many movies. We have the 2018 Off the Rails, this film, and then Netflix's recent Luckiest Girl Alive, starring Mila Kunis. Our production designer is Jed Clark. He has 19 credits, mostly music videos for artists like Art of Noise, Flock of Seagulls, The Blow Monkeys, Duran Duran, Sting, so we're talking crime 80s and 90s stuff. Uh, He also was the production designer for the documentary series Year Million and then a Danish show called Trom. But he's really only done production design for this film and another film, 2013's Numbers, Station, starring Malin Ackerman and John Cusack, I believe.
0: Yeah, that's... Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. It's actually an okay film, but it's... I don't know. I think it was relegated to, like, straight to cable or video or something. All right. So we get to our costume designer. This is Japanese genius Eiko Ishioka. Um, She was the production designer for Paul Schrader's Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters. Uh, she also directed music videos for Bjork and she has, she is the stunning costume designer for not only Mishima, which I just mentioned, but Coppola's Dracula. Those costumes are fantastic in that movie. Um, the cell, uh, this film, the immortals mirror mirror. She was also the costume designer for the winter Olympics in Nagano in 1998. So she designed all the costumes for the show. And she designed the costumes for Cirque du Soleil's tour, Verakai. Um, unfortunately, again, she passed away in 2012, but she leaves a very um, expansive and creative legacy. And so that brings us to Tarsem Singh, our director. Uh, this is interesting. He is Indian, he's the son of an aircraft engineer. He was educated at Bishop Cotton Boys School in Shimla and relocated to the USA to study business at Harvard. Ooh, <laughs> and, yeah. signifi- and significantly film studies at the Art Center College of Design in California. He has done music videos for Suzanne Vega, and Vogue, Vanessa Paradis, he's probably most known for that striking video for REM for losing my religion, Mm -hmm. which went on to win about six MTV video music awards. And just as an aside, Tar Sam, as he goes by was one of the music video directors that, you know, I grew up like sort of worshiping. And when I found out that those music video directors moved into movies, I was like the first in line for a lot of them. So I'm thinking of, Tar Sam, I'm thinking of Mark Romanek, um, uh, Dominic Sena, David Fincher, Fincher. all of Mick, them starting Mick the G? Music Were you video. big Mick G guy. Yeah, yes, I was in fact. Of course, Mick Jose G was guy. a big Mick yes. G. Fit. Yep. Of course, and so you know, talk about
0: think, full throttle for just a second. Go ahead. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know I love. You know I love this. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Mr. Singh, his uh, credits have been as movies, The Cell. Follow that up with this film, The Fall. Um, Strangely, I did say we know why he didn't work, but he did have The Immortals in 2011. Mirror, Mirror, which is uh, sort of like a fairy tale retelling kind of thing with Julia Roberts, that's in 2012. Um, And then Ryan Reynolds, the Ryan Reynolds starring Selfless in 2015. The Emerald City, which is like the Wizard of Oz reboot miniseries for sci-fi, that was in 2017. But since then, there has not been any features, unfortunately, for Mr. Singh, which uh, we're going to get to this. It's it's a tragedy because the the
1: man is a visual genius. Okay. Well, let's talk about the people in front of the camera. This is going to be a short conversation. So <laughs> there's probably one name that most people would know just because he's gone on to be in some larger franchises. But I think it's fair to say that from an American audience perspective, a lot of people outside of one person are a lot of character actors, not a lot of big names. Uh, On the international side, again, you have a lot of character actors, not a lot of big names. Uh, But let's start with Lee Pace. Lee plays Roy Walker, uh, and then within the fairy tale part of this, he's also the masked bandit. Now, Lee began uh, on TV, Law & Order Special Victims Unit, 2002, started moving into like TV movies and other series like Soldier's Girl, which I think was a TV film. 2004, he was in a TV series called Wonderfalls. Uh, 2006, so he did a film in 2005. but 2006, he has three things come out. The White Countess, or excuse me, that, that was 2005. In 2006, he has Infamous. Oh, I, I must've did this wrong. White Countess is 2006. The fall is 2006. And then he goes on to be in some larger franchises. So he ends up in the twilight saga. I don't know if he was in all the films, but he's in one of those. He ends up uh, playing Thranduil, the Elven King in the Hobbit film series, but probably the role that people will know him from is guardians of the galaxy and captain Marvel. He plays, Ronan. So I, I know you're pretty excited. Yes. Jose, I'm, I'm going to just assume you love Lee Pace.
2: I love Lee Pace. And actually, honestly, I, I knew Lee Pace from, so Wonderfalls was created by Brian Fuller, who went on to do Hannibal and um, American Gods. But he created a series on ABC that I fell in love with called Pushing Daisies, which oh. if if no one has ever seen it, he is fantastic in it. The series is fantastic. There's nothing like it. Like ever on television, it's just uh, like that Hannibal. he can
0: bring back the dead, right? Isn't he like make pies yeah. or something? Okay, yeah, uh-huh.
2: yeah, yeah. It's it's so great, and um, he came out recently,
0: <laughs> Lee okay. Pace.
2: He's married to a very good-looking man, um. But yeah, I I I love Lee Pace. He's fantastic, and he's, he was in Bodies, 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 almost unrecognizable, playing the uh, sort of party
1: rastafarian or whatever. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. He's he's still working today. I mean, when you look at his filmography, he's all over the place. And it's yeah. interesting that he comes into these, I mean, watching the fall and then remembering this is Ronan from Guardians of the Galaxy. You would not put that together. I mean, he's yeah. a very versatile actor. Uh, I, I don't know, Brad, or do you, do you gravitate to him when you see his credits on screen? Or is he just somebody that you're always surprised to see?
0: I'm always kind of surprised to see. I'm I, Sorry, Jose, I've never been hugely impressed by him, <laughs> like a singular performance. Ronan's fine. Like he's just kind of there. Like, again, I don't think that's his fault. Ronan just isn't that fleshed out in that movie very much. Um, and then the, the Hobbit stuff just made me so mad that they took one book and made it into three. So I was bound to hate all those movies <laughs> and then twilight's not my bag. Um, but he's no, he's mine. fine. He's fantastic. Yeah. Um, he's fine. He's fine. Like I, I, I'm not disappointed when I see him, but I'm I'm not like jumping up and down because I see Lee Pace, but he's perfectly fine.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm never I'm not looking through his filmography and going I'm gonna see every Lee Pace film that he's ever done. But I but I will say I do get a little excited when I see his name because this film um, I I do like him as Ronan in Guardians of the Galaxy. I, I think he's a really versatile actor. He's always going to bring something different.
2: He's versatile. He's definitely more like, like he has that sensitive kind of like range. Mm-hmm. So to see him as Ronan actually surprised me. Yeah. I was like, "Is that Lee Pace?" Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but yes, he's very versatile and he's definitely stretching now, especially with that bodies, bodies, bodies role.
0: Well, yeah. and then I think his best thing that he ever did was *Halt* *Catch Fire*, the AMC show.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, with Scoot McNary. who's mm-hmm. also pretty, mm-hmm.
2: pretty freaking amazing.
1: Awesome. Yeah. This name, uh, Kentinka Untaru, Uh, she plays Alexandria. So she competed against hundreds of children from all over the world for the role of Alexandria. And Untaru became the first Romanian child actress to star in an international film. If you look at her filmography, there's a couple of shorts in there, but she's only done two films, The Fall in 2006 and The Dowry in 2011. We will talk about her in in great depth when we share our thoughts of the film, I guarantee it. The rest of the names, uh, a lot of character actors. We've got Justine Waddle as Nurse Evelyn. She plays Sister Evelyn within the fairy tale portion. She's been in Mansfield Park, Dracula 2000, a Jason Yay. Statham film called Chaos that came out in 2005. Leading up to the fall, we've got G2 Verma as Indian. He also is the orange picker uh, in in the real life scenarios. If you're a uh, Salman Khan uh, film enthusiast, you might have seen him in Bodyguard from 2011 or Jai Ho in 2014. Uh, he also did Action Jackson in 2014. So he, I'm going to get this wrong, but I believe he's on the Bollywood side, not the Tollywood side of filmmaking. Um, if you watch Action Jackson, it's pretty crazy. It It's, it's another Indian film that's a lot of fun, but It has that very heightened uh, action surrealism that we've talked about when we talked about these films. uh, What was it last year, Brad, about this time? Yeah. Yeah, but go check it out. It's fun. Uh, Leo Bill plays Darwin, um, and he's also the orderly. He was in 28 Days Later, Becoming Jane, and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. So again, a character actor. He shows up, probably isn't carrying a bunch of lines, probably has the same amount of lines in the fall that he has in most of his work. Uh, and then the rest of these names, when you look at the filmography, you're like, okay, they're working, which is cool. But a lot of stuff that I'm not familiar with Robin Smith as Luigi, the one legged actor, Marcus Wesley as Otto Benga, the ice delivery man and Julian bleach as the mystic were, uh, the orange picker. So not a lot of well-known actors or actresses outside of maybe Lee Pace. Lee Pace is the one that, has probably got some traction um, post this film real quick. Yeah, but
0: this is 2006 though. So, well, so it's not even like Lee pace was it wasn't he pace. Yeah. He's yeah.
1: four years uh, into his acting career, more or less uh, production and development. Tarsim Singh largely financed the film with his own funds. We talked about that. He was determined to make the film according to his own vision and paid members of the cast and crew on an equal basis rather than in more typical Hollywood fashion. Singh says the film was made over a period of four years and incorporates footage shot in more than 20 countries, including Mm -hmm. India, Indonesia, Italy, France, Spain, uh, China, and numerous others, a few of which are not listed in the credits. Singh stressed the importance of on-location filmmaking and lack of special effects in interviews because he found that modern techniques would not age well in comparison. So the special effects thing, I think, got him in trouble because everybody's like, wait a minute, there are special effects in this. And I think what he's trying to say was we didn't have like computer CGI sets or green screen.
0: Yeah, we're not on a green screen. Yeah,
1: if we use special effects, it was to extend the height of something or accentuate it. But all of the special effects, quote unquote, were really practical effects that were enhanced by, I'm sure, some kind of computer um, aid but mm-hmm. it, it really CGI is not in this film at all, which is pretty impressive. He reportedly only took advertising jobs in places that he wanted to do location scouting for and would fly out cast members to shoot scenes for the film using the same crew as he did for commercials. So that's how they, you know, got all these locations and he would fly everybody out for it. Um, if you're lucky to have the DVD or Blu-ray, there's a lot of special features on it. And within that, I thought this was an interesting sort of tidbit of fun trivia. They they reveal that actor Lee Pace remained in a bed for most of the early filming at the director's suggestion, convincing most of the crew that he was in fact unable to walk. The intention, Tarsim and Pace noted, was to maximize the realism of Roy's physical limitations in the eyes of Untaru, whose lines and reaction as the character Alexandria were largely unscripted, and so were Young. Katinka's spontaneous interaction with Pace's character. For example, Alexandria's misinterpreting the letter E as the number three in a note written by Roy came about from an accidental misreading by the six-year-old actress during filming, which the director then realized he could adapt into a clever twist in the story. So uh, the reason why she is feels so naturalistic in this is a lot of her stuff is improvised. Um, and she's reacting to what um, Pace is giving her. To further the realism of young Katinka's performance, Tarsum had portions of the hospital scenes between Pace and his young co star filmed through small holes in the hospital bed curtains, maximizing the youngster's spontaneous interactions with Pace despite the presence of the film crew surrounding them. Here's the other thing I didn't know The Fall is based on a Bulgarian film from 1981 called Yo-Ho-Ho. So same story. There's a person that is uh, paralyzed in bed. He befriends a small boy and he's telling the boy pirate stories so that he can get the boy to basically get him some medicine. And I think it's the same kind of thing where he wants to commit suicide. So there's written by
2: um, Valeri Petrov,
1: who's Bulgarian. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, but I'm really curious to go back and watch that now after seeing the fall from the way I understand it. Even though it's based on it, it's two entirely different interpretations of the story. So, um, yeah, that that will be one to track down. I wonder if it's easier to find than this film, to be <laughs> quite honest. Be.
2: It might be. <laughs>
1: okay, so uh, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going... Oh, man, I, I really don't know where we're going to go on this review. But uh, I got a feeling it's going to be pretty heavy. We're, we're going to go some places. So uh, stay tuned, and we'll be back.
0: Time for refreshment. Refreshment. For your enjoyment, there's hot, fresh popcorn, tempting, delicious hot dogs, and so many kinds of ice cream. And of course, sparkling, delicious, ice-cold Coca-Cola for everybody at the refreshment counter now. Remember, your favorite snack will taste especially good with world-famous
1: ice-cold Coca-Cola. King Kong. The horror picture of all time. Don't let him get me! A beautiful girl torn from the arms of her lover by a jungle beast. King Kong.
0: See a battle between prehistoric monsters on an island time forgot.
1: A nightmare jungle creature from the primeval past stalking Midnight Street. My It's got my baby! See the thrill classic of all time. The biggest gorilla picture ever made in motion picture history. The jungle epic that can never be duplicated. See RKO's original... King Kong. King Kong. King Kong. Okay, Jose Brad, where do you want to start with this thing? There's, there's a lot to unpack here. There, there, there is. Yes,
2: there is. I will just, I, I will just say this though. I mean, regardless of where you fall, ha <laughs> ha.
1: Hey. Um, <laughs> hey.
2: <laughs> um, regardless of where you fall on whether it's a good movie or you know, the consensus is it's kind of like it's kind of like a hot mess. Um, I think what's undeniable is Tarsem's ability to just visually, the visuals,
0: yes, the visuals
2: narrate are- a story. They the visuals are eye popping and unique, and it's just a tragedy that this uh, didn't shoot him like to like superstardom because it's just it's unlike anything I've ever seen and some of the visuals are just he picks the right angle to maximize some things and then the music and and the production design wow the man's an artist he's absolutely an artist even if he repeats a lot of the sort of visual motifs like if you've seen the immortals or the cell or the you know the even the REM video you will see things that he sort of repeats they're like almost like repeating imagery imagery in each of his films including the use of the the crane where he does these beautiful like sweeps up and down from like low angles to high or high to low but there's no other director like him honestly i i just i i don't know i defy anybody to find somebody who has this unique of a visual style he's just it's beautiful
0: i'll echo that like you you've probably never seen a film like this before it's visually unique it's stunning um so regardless of what you think of the film it might be almost worth it to hunt it down just to see some of the stuff that's in this um before i get into my actual thoughts that's what i will say uh visually it's it is stunning and even on a rinky dink dvd It still looks absolutely crazy. And they're the color and all just the the use of color and and everything in and the different locations. Like you can tell they went places. This is not a green screen. This is they are at places and it transfers over to the eye so well.
1: Okay.
2: And I I believe they said that there were no sets. It was all just locations. Yes. Mm -hmm. And they go. I mean, they go everywhere. One one second. It's Prague. The next, they're in India. The next, they're in Turkey. Like they're on the Great Wall at one yeah, point during the, the montage sequence. Yeah, they're they're in a city in Morocco where like some of the buildings are painted blue. Like it's just wow. He has got an eye. I mean, well,
0: the, the thing about the Great Wall is the Great Wall is for like a twenty second shot.
1: Yeah. Yes, <laughs> that's probably all they could get. <laughs> yeah, to be right. quite honest, they
0: get out. Okay. Uh.
1: Yeah. Well. So. I will read a lot of reviews about this film and the term comes up eye candy over and over again. This film is, is two hours of eye candy. It's more than that. So that's where I want to go. Uh, I, I don't think anybody would ever debate that, you know, using terms like, Hey, this is a painting come to life or or the visuals are just, you know, so unique and impressive, totally warranted. But I guess the question now comes down to with all of that at play, is it an engaging film or is it a good film for that matter? Or is it just one of those that you see at one time and you go, wow, it is an art piece. It is an art house film. And when you walk away from it, you go, well, I'll remember some of the visuals, but that's about it, right? And then move on from there. But I, I don't, I don't know if you guys feel that way because I do um, feel that a lot of the critics, when they came to this at the time of its release it didn't necessarily give it a fair shake and really graded it on its visuals, but that's where they stopped except for somebody like Roger Ebert. I think Roger Ebert got it. Um, but yeah, I was surprised did. to read how many people from the critical perspective, um, seem to kind of gloss over this and feel that this was a very glossy film. I don't know if you guys had the same reaction.
0: Uh, okay. Well, I'll just get into my, to my thoughts cause mm-hmm. I have some things to say. Um, <clears throat> I'm so conflicted when it comes to this because this is something unique. It is definitely the vision of a director and you can see it come to life. I just wish the storytelling was a little bit better. I wish that first hour, look that horse sequence with the train at the very beginning in black and white is one of the most stunning sequences I've ever seen in my entire life. This movie starts off with that in like in this slow motion shot and I was in from shot one. And then you realize this is going to be a story that is told to a little girl. And you're going to get sort of her interpretation of his story through her mind. So she's, she's pulling in all these references that she knows. So the bad guys are the x-ray guy and like all this other stuff. And, you know, like the nurse is this and these all the people that he's talking about, she's using her points of reference to like populate that story. And that's fine. And I think you can make that work. I just wish that first hour would do something. It, it felt like it just took forever to get going. Um, And so I'm, I was always disappointed when it went back to the real world. Like I wanted to stay in the story, Uh, the story kind of, that he's telling I wanted to stay there. I never wanted to go back to the hospital because that was the boring stuff. Um, I always thought the other stuff was way more interesting and that was what I was gravitating towards. And so when it shifts back, you're like, God, I, I want to see what the other people are doing. Cause that's way more interesting to me. Um, But like on the back end of it, you get way more of their story and I feel like it comes together better mm-hmm. at the end. For me, I just could not help feeling a little bit let down every time we're back in the real world um, because we have to deal with the little girl. And I'm not going to say anything bad about the little girl, but I, I don't think she's very good now. She's only six. So I'm not going to like, I just found her super (laughs) annoying. And honestly, like I found the relationship a little uncomfortable In a way, like when she's like climbing in bed with him and really close, I always find it really weird when people befriend little kids when they're like not related or anything like that. It just, it creeps me out. Um, Like if someone wanted to be best friends with my son and he was like a 35 year old man, I'd be like, uh, this is kind of weird. So um, anyway, but I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I wish I liked it more because this is one of those films that I think deserves to be watched and to be seen. I just think the storytelling is really clunky and I just wish it was better. I really do.
1: So you, it sounds like you're falling on the side of what a lot of critics may have pointed out at that point, which was they were impressed with the visuals, but they they felt um, the story, the, the main central story, not the fairy tale or the essence of the shared storytelling that's happening just wasn't up to pace um, for your enjoyment more or less. Yeah.
0: And then and, and, and like when you have a non-passive listener, which the little girl is, and then she like puts herself into the story, you're like, okay, well now anything can happen. Like r- at that point in time, the story becomes irrelevant because now anything can happen. Cause she could just bring in whatever. I'm like, this is, so I, I don't know. You,
1: you just said a phrase, a, a, non-passive listener. Mm -hmm. So she was active. She was an active listener through the whole thing is what you're saying.
0: Yeah. I mean, she inserts herself into the story.
1: Was she doing it in the beginning or do you think, okay. But
0: eventually she, well, I mean, she kind of was because she was populating her vision of the story with all the people she knew. Right. Um, but yeah, she becomes an active participant in the story by like, inserting herself and in, at that point in time you can do anything and I don't know I, I kind of liked the way it was going when he was telling the story because it was way more dark and sinister um <laughs> okay. I will say another sequence that I thought was really spectacular is when the mystic is surrounded by all the other guys and they just oh pop God. out of the mud. Yes. I rewound that and watched it like three or four times. Because I did too. Yeah. They are not there and there's not a cut. And then all of a sudden they're there. And if they don't use some sort of special effect there, I don't know how they did it. It is one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. The, so it's, there, it's are like, there are shots. There are shots like that where you're like, this is incredible.
1: It's the and greener have, pasture sequence. Yeah. And, and the, then it, that leads to the mapping montage, which is just this kaleidoscope so cool. of images. Yeah. yeah. So cool. I just I just wish the storytelling was better. So. Okay. No, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, Jose, you were making some interesting faces while Brad was. Was I? Yes, you were. <laughs> it was just showing. If this were a video, everybody would be like, ooh, I, I think Jose disagrees. But I don't know. I could be misreading you. But what, what do you think to, to Brad's comments or what was your experience to this?
2: So, you know, I, I had seen this before. I actually had it on DVD. Um, and then I think, I think I just lost it or something happened to it. I, I, I don't have it anymore, but, um, you know, I think. Somewhere
0: my copy and your copy are just out, 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 like hanging out. They're hanging out out. on a beach. (laughs) That's right.
2: They're with the other, uh, what do you call it? Um, lost socks there's like a, <laughs> a, a party going on um <clears throat> or the single pairs so um i can the reason why i was making the faces is because i can absolutely see where brad was coming from with regards to you know it, it starts and it's got fantastic visuals and you're you're going along with this and then you sort of are like Okay, what's the point of everything, right? And it's—I'm not going to say it's a slog because, again, it it, the visual narrative is so strong and amazing. But at some point, there could—well, just for the entire thing, I think that there could have been some tightening of it because, you know, to me, this film is a lot like The Princess Bride or even the most recent um, Three Thousand Years of Longing, right? So there's like a there's a wraparound story. The little girl, the uh, the guy. Why is he in the bed? You know what's happening with his life, and then there's the story within this story that that he's telling to the kid, right? And so again, it, it felt a lot like those two movies that I just mentioned because you go back and forth, right? Um, and I didn't I didn't have the same feeling, although I can see why Brad would think it's creepy that like. A, a little girl and a guy would sort of be interacting like that. Um, I didn't think that that was creepy. I did think it was a little odd that, you know, it sort of comes out that he's suicidal and then he sends her on this little trip to get him, you know, morphine three. Um, so that's that's a little strange in the storytelling. But again, it's, it's more of an adult kind of thing. And so her place in it is... A little striking. It's it's a it's an odd plot device, um, but there's cute little nods to like the Wizard of Oz. How the ho- hospital staff ends up being the people that are populated in the story that she's imagining. Um, but I thought that it was new that suddenly she became a part of all of that. But I think that was really more of a metaphor, right? Of you know her burgeoning relationship with this gentleman. And then we start to get in the story the pieces of what's actually happening with uh, Lee Pace and his significant other, what he was doing on the movie, and then the lead actor from the film. Um, But I just liked that they didn't give you that fully. You have to pick it up from, from the story as you're watching it. So it's almost like layered storytelling. But that might not go over well with many audiences, right? They they might just be like, okay, it's beautiful, but I don't really know what happened and it was overly long. So I can understand that criticism, but I bought into it. I feel like there's also this sort of Lynchian dream, sort of like logic narrative that's going on with the t- storytelling as well. And so, you know, again, he's giving you the pieces, but not necessarily saying, hey, this is actually what's happening. I think I know what happened, but I could be completely wrong about it.
1: What What do so. you mean? Like, what what part do you think is unclear?
2: Well, so at some at some point, there's there's a the, I guess the the villain has a wife, right? And he's she's supposed to be the love interest. There's this thing about the locket, but then I think what comes out later is that, you know, maybe his wife because he's a stunt guy and Uh his wife is an actress and maybe she had some sort of affair with this lead actor. Right. And the studio is there because they're trying to get him to take a settlement. But what you glean from the, the actor suddenly appearing in the, in the story and then being shot and all of that is that, you know, it's him coming to the realization that like, okay, she left him for him, he got hurt in the stunt, stunt's not gonna be in the movie, he should probably take the payout, but it's not the end of his life, you know? And that he can come back from that and start anew. And again, I think that's bolstered from the fact that afterwards the little girl is saying, oh, I saw him in the whatever, whatever. And then it gets into this weird montage, which almost seems to be like an homage to stunt people and then she's you know,
0: imagining him being in all those stunts
2: right um and so it's it's quirky that he uses that montage uh in a way to just sort of like show that he's he's moved on in some ways and then we end with him like smiling as he's watching like the film or whatever um but well, i like the like,
1: fact yeah
0: well well, like throughout Did i the get film, that right was i wrong well, about i, that? I, I think, so. I think it was like well i don't think film, he was
1: married I think that's wrong. It was his girlfriend. Okay. And he he is healed. It's not her imagining him into it. If you take it literally, she is healed and back on the farm. He actually is not permanently paralyzed and he goes back to work working in the in the films.
2: Yeah. But I th- but I thought that there was some relationship with the lead in the film, which is why when they're telling the story towards the end that the nurse, we show that they show us that the nurse is actually in love with the doctor, which is the w- which is the little girl. What she sees, because remember she sees them having sex, um, but she injects that. But uh, I can't describe it. I got it visually, but I can't I can't describe it. There's a reason why she suddenly doesn't become the love interest, even though there are allusions to his actual girlfriend. If any of that makes sense.
1: It does. I, I think, I think she doesn't know uh, his girlfriend. Right. But in spite of that, she's using the nurse in her place. Yeah. So you, you have to, you have to understand like the, the fairy tale aspect of this film. Um, and Brad kind of alluded this to a little bit. It's cooperative storytelling. So this isn't just uh, Roy's story. You, you have to take a step back and go, this is Roy and Alexandria story. Roy is doing the verbal part. Alexandria is doing the visual representation. Demon and there is a point yeah. in the fairy tale where it, she starts contributing to the story. Uh, and that's when she inserts herself. And now the story is kind of commingled and they're both trying to take control of it from that point. And so she's only interjecting visuals that she knows about. So whereas Roy is, uh, I don't know, love torn and and all this other stuff, wants to commit suicide over the fact that he's paralyzed and he lost his girlfriend. You know, she can't necessarily put that together in her mind, but she knows that he's upset about a girl, doesn't know who the girl is, and then uses the nurse um, in her visualization of it.
2: Yes, yes, thank you. Thank you for expressing that. Also, you know, the fall, the titular fall in some ways, you know, he goes through it. She goes through it. There's these analogies about, and even some of the characters have their fall as well. So I,
0: I don't know. I just all the character, all the characters fall. Yeah. Yes.
2: A couple so, of times. I mean, <laughs> a couple of times. Um. And there's some dynamite. But um, I don't know. I just I feel like I I got the threads, and that's from the strength of the the sort of narrative storytelling. Even if I didn't get it completely, um but it could, it could have used some tightening. Um, yeah, but I just, I'm actually considering dropping a lot of money to try to get a copy of this. Oh, wow. Okay. Because I, I, you know, revisiting it, it, it's just, it's, it's like a, it's like a museum piece, you know, does it make you want to go
1: back and watch it and dissect it more after you see it? Yes. Okay. Yes. I did watch it twice. Oh, in the same. So you watched it twice this week. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Nice.
1: Uh, I, this, this, <laughs> this movie is very hard for me to watch. I'll be honest with you. RIP Wallace. Uh, <laughs> Hashtag Wallace forever. <laughs> that, th- we'll get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> you, <laughs> no, um, actually, I know about this film and I watched it. And the fact when you picked it the first time, I'm like, oh, I, I mentally have to get ready for this one. And even this week, it gets to me. So uh, I have Perthes disease. Perthes disease in my right hip basically means when, when you're growing up, your hip is more egg-shaped than circular. So my right leg ended up growing a little bit shorter, and I was in leg braces as a kid. And this is the 70s, so um, doctors really didn't know what to do yet. So when you first get diagnosed, what happened was, was Wichita, Kansas, uh, St. Francis of Assisi hospital downtown in the kids wing, whatever floor it was, I spent a month in bed and what they did, this is so archaic when I tell you this. So when they, they do the x-rays and they go, Oh, well, blood's not getting to this and so it's not growing correctly. So what we're going to do is we're going to strap him down to the bed. We're going to take his right leg and we're going to put it on like elevate it and put on a pulley system. So my, my right leg is suspended in the air and it goes through a contraption where there's weights at the end and I was not allowed to get out of the bed. So you pee in a pan and if I got up, I have to be on you know, crutches, not put anything on it. But for a month it was me. And this is the time like the Buck Rogers TV show was out. So all I had to play with was this, um, Buck Rogers playset. It was like an orange and it wasn't even anything to do with the show. It was like this yellow saucer with a red um, top to it with these little plastic men. And that's what I would play with for, this is what I remember from this whole hospital thing. The Catholic priest would visit me like every other day. I would play with his Buck Rogers set, parents would be there. And then at night I was sharing the room with this kid and you could see the city lights out our window. I couldn't get out of bed to go see it. So he would go to the window and tell me what it was like. And so oh for 30 days, I'm just in, before they go, okay, we're putting you in leg braces and the way the leg braces worked. And I wore these for years is it's a, it's a strap on your hips with a metal bar where your knees are. And so you're kind of waddling. So you either wore crutches or that was my childhood. So people bring experiences to when they see films. And when you see a film like this you go, Oh, it takes place in a hospital. And this guy, you know, is is in a hospital and he can't he can't move because of an accident. And then he has a little girl coming and that's his visitor. All of a sudden I'm just having these flashbacks of of that time in the hospital. And so I find it very curious when Brad's like, yeah, the uh the sequences, the fairy tale portion of it is is the most interesting thing about the film. For me it's it's quite the opposite. It's actually the sequences outside of that. But I know why for me it's that way. It's basically because of my childhood of what I experienced. Right. And there are some films that just get to me. So like, this is one of them where I, I, I watched it alone. I, I don't know if I can watch it with other people to be quite honest. So my, my wife and kids are like, we've seen that film. I'm like, well, you haven't seen it with me because I know I watched this sucker alone and other, other things like Forrest Gump doesn't necessarily do it to me. Um, but Eddie, the Eagle, the beginning of Eddie, the Eagle, I, I cry. Um, because it just brings back everything that I went through at that point. But, um, there's so much to unpack from it. And, and again, when I talk about it, I don't know if I'm bringing my own personal experience to it, or I actually, I'm, I'm going to go on a limb here and say, Brad's completely wrong on some of his comments when he talks about the things outside of the fairy tale. And here's why I think there's a lot to unpack. You can unpack it from a historical perspective because you've got things happening in this film that relate to the time period of what was going on when this movie takes place. And a great example is the controversy over Charles Darwin's ideas. That's why the monkey is named Wallace. It's named after, um, Alfred Russell Wallace and why Darwin is always saying, Oh, what did you say? Oh, well, I think because there's this whole controversy on the, uh, ideas of, uh, on the origin of species, and whether or not Darwin stole those ideas from Wallace. So it's kind of cool that for that time period, you've got this historical context that the film kind of inserts in there within the fairy tale. But again, what I think is so brilliant is that's what Roy would have read in the newspaper or had known at the time. And he incorporates little things like that within his story. You could dissect this thing on all of the themes that it tries to tackle. And I think it, it does so in a very successful way. So you could talk about storytelling in general about people's interpretation of what they hear and how they visualize a story. I think one of the most interesting themes in here, and I think it's really relevant to today, um, is how we use storytelling to manipulate people. So he is manipulating her to act on his behalf as a result of the story. Which, if you pay attention to, uh, I don't know, it, 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 you you just go to any news site you want to, and especially if they're backed by some Democrat or backed by some Republican, everybody's always fighting about, well, Disney's indoctrinating our kids, or, you know, Fox News is indoctrinating our kids for this. So everybody is indoctrinating somebody, and they're they're pointing fingers at some news outlet or some studio and saying, "Oh, you're using storytelling to manipulate." such and such, right? Whatever the issue or the cause is. Well, yeah, that's what storytelling can do in the wrong hands. And this film tackles that to a certain degree. And I I find that extremely interesting uh, in in a film like this. You could have a really great debate over all the symbolism in the film. So you could sit there and just make a list and go teeth. It's a symbol of power. And and that comes up a couple of times between the fact that she doesn't have her two front teeth to the old man's teeth, the fact they bury the teeth at the end in the oranges, butterflies, um, how it's a symbol of the soul. Um and elephant, Yeah, and change. Elephants yeah. are a symbol of luck. And I, I, I like this visual representation that the first time you see Alexandria, she's wearing this sort of gray sweater and, you know, that sleeve is hanging down it's a like great sleeve and it looks like an elephant trunk. And then he incorporates yeah. that within the story. And it's the elephant that just happens to come along and gets him off the island. So you could go back and watch this thing three or four times and oranges. just make oranges. Oranges are big. Yeah. Horses.
0: Oranges are like vitamin C, which heals people. Roy's the only yep. person who doesn't eat oranges, but also like films like Godfather teach us that oranges mean death. So usually like here in the other world, there's death with oranges, uh, close by the one I saw the second time is that town is blue yeah which blue means sadness and that was when after that is when everything starts to get sad with him and they start to die one by one so
1: yeah the yeah. the color schemes and representations yeah. within each of of the chapters of the story as it progresses is super interesting and in where it goes with it and and again you could uh, to your point Jose you can watch this thing three or four times ago. You know what? This time I'm just going to concentrate on all the symbolism. This time I'm going to concentrate on the visuals. You could go, all right, what's your favorite visuals? I, my two standouts that every time I see it just get to me is the shadow on the wall through the keyhole in the beginning. Yeah, It, it is so amazing how he puts that together. And it's a more simple visualization, but it's really, uh, I, I think it's really potent and setting up what's going to happen in terms of her interpretation of what she's seeing on the shadow, versus what's really happening on the other side of that keyhole, and how the sunlight comes through. I mean, that's art right there. The director is telling you, "Here's what the movie's going to be about within this one sequence." It's yeah. so cool. And then we talked about well, the- it was
2: almost like it was almost like a film being projected. Yeah, you it, know, and it's it's yeah, it great wonderful. foreshadowing
1: um, for yeah. like how how the story is going to present itself, right? Uh, the greener pastures thing is hands down one of the most amazing things you're going to see like in the 2000s, I think. Uh, and then you get these horrific images. And the two that stick out is the the human chandelier when the mm. the brother is hung, which is just yeah. morbid, but it's like beautifully morbid. And then you get this stop motion sequence during her surgery, which is yes. just, I mean, you you brought up David Lynch. That's exactly what came to mind for me. I was thinking
0: um, of like those tool videos from the 90s. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so that they that, did, they did use some of that stop motion in the cell
2: too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. And then I was just going to say the other sequence that I adore is when the, when the traditional people are in the dresses and they're spinning and the oh, camera's yes. spinning at the wedding and then the, yeah. And then the assassin is sort of sneaking in and the camera's still spinning. That's a gorgeous sequence.
1: Yeah. The, the, you could sit there and go, well, for this viewing, I'm just concentrating on the visuals uh, and I swear there are some visuals that look like Renaissance paintings that have just come to life in some sequences, especially some of the um, Christian, um, I, I don't know, sequences that come up with, you know, it, it, I, I don't know. There, there's so much symbolism in here that you could just spend time just making a list of, well, that looks like this painting. This looks like this painting. And I'm sure Tarson probably had a coffee table book of all these different artists and, and said, oh, I'm going to borrow a little bit from Dolly. Or, I'm, you know, I'm going to take this and put that in there. But here, here's where I here's where I totally disagree with Brad. And again, I think my, I, I guess, uh, perception on it is really resonating from my own experience as a childhood. The thing I remember most about this film outside of the gut wrenching monkey death scene, which we'll talk about here in a minute, it, it really is the relationship between Roy and Alexandria where Brad is saying, every time I'm, I'm in the real world, I want to go back to the fairy tale in my head. Every time I'm in the fairy tale, I want to go back to the real world uh, because the scenes between them are my favorite parts. Their chemistry, I think actually supersedes anything you're seeing on screen visually. They're in the moment and everything so effortlessly. And, and, and you know why, because she's actually improvising and reacting off of his line delivery and the way they capture it, it, it's just, it's pure magic. In my opinion, the big climactic scene, um, which is the cumul I, I guess it's the cumulative result of them trying to take over the story. It's very emotional. It's after she has the fall, the second fall, it, it's basically taking her hope and his despair. And they're having this battle on how the story is going to end. And, uh, I think it trumps anything that's on screen and it it's so moving and it's so powerful. It makes me cry. Uh, and I, I do think this movie is way more than just eye candy. It has this beautiful lie that binds two characters together and just makes the audience feel everything these characters are feeling. So again, I would always preference that view with, Hey, I had this experience growing up. So (laughs) It, it's going to taint my view of a movie like this, but I would even say without that, I probably would still gravitate to those scenes and feel that same way because as amazing as the, as the visuals are, I think Roy and Alexandria are amazing characters that you just want to spend time with and see where it's going. And Roy's despair, I, I feel is genuine uh, and, and where the story goes and, and his attempt at suicide, it, it doesn't feel like a cheap plot point. I think it would, if you didn't come to that end part where he's in a wheelchair next to her and they're having this, this, um, just climax in this duel over how the story should end. And he finally kind of gives into her hope and, uh, it dude, it, it makes you, it makes you feel, and it's rare for a movie to, to get that out of me. And, and this is, this is a I I think this is an impressive film. If somebody were like, would you spend $150 on a, on a Blu-ray for this thing? Heck yeah, you should.
2: Um, the scenes between pace and, uh, the little girl, like, even as I was watching it in my mind, I was like flash forwarding to like now thinking that or believing that they're the two of them are best friends and that they, you know, hang out and, and like you know, we have coffee together or they go shopping or something like that. Like there it's so real and it's her surrogate father. Yeah. When he apologizes to her and he's like, you know, I used you or whatever. And, and she's sort of heartbroken by that. And he is too. Like, yeah. Wow. It's just, yeah, it's, it's great.
0: (laughs) I don't, I mean, I think if someone just says this thing is only visuals, i I don't like to say when people's opinions are wrong, but you're completely wrong. I agree. I I think it's fair. Yeah.
1: I think you can quantitatively say that is a wrong opinion because there's so much to dissect on this film, but you, you have to, you have to buy into it and you have to treat this as more of an art piece than just a popcorn film.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're probably right.
1: But yeah, I, I, uh, and then on top of all of that, you get that. Damn monkey scene. Um, yeah. I, I'm going to say this. If if we were to go back in 2006 in Time Machine, and you're, you're getting ready to post something for the Academy Awards, Jose. Here's why I think the Academy Awards are a total joke, is because back in 2006, um, Wallace the monkey should have gotten some type of Academy Award that year for his death scene. I I couldn't see straight because of the waterworks were in full force. I mean, he, he has his bullet in his chest and he yeah. is acting the hell out of that scene. And he, he just opens up his little hand <clears throat> and that butterfly comes out. Uh Yeah. It, <clears throat> woo, yeah. That monkey. It's, uh,
2: also, why was Darwin dressed like um a droog from clockwork orange at that point? Yeah. He
0: looked like uh, very so I was, strange. Yep. Uh,
1: I, I don't know. I can't, I, I can't like, take it. That monkey scene. That is a little ultra violent.
0: Yeah, a little in and out, and out,
1: in and out. Uh, yeah. It was but, more uh, moving yeah, than that Lawrence Fishburne movie we watched, uh Biker Boys. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Larry Fisher and
1: yes. Uh
2: dude. <laughs> the- and and I'm, I'm, I'm I'm not
1: sitting here being sarcastic. That I I bawled at that monkey. Scene.
2: No, it's <laughs> true. A, it's it's uh, it really is sad. And then like the butterfly. I mean, you know, yeah. she's she's drawn the butterfly on her stomach with like the lisp, the lipstick and all of that, and it is a symbol for change and it's like he you know he was running to go get it for his master and then the stupid governor's assassins shot him Ugh. Uh, it's yeah, terrible it so sad
1: gut-wrenching it is
2: it is i it is. and and it's one of it's those so uncalled for i was like you say that it,
1: but i don't know it it, it really it
0: kind of has to happen
1: yeah
2: i know it's it serves the story but like at that point like, we'd seen the monkey, he goes away, he comes back a little bit, and then they bring him back just to kill him. Like, I just, that was, I don't know, that broke my heart.
1: <laughs> it, hey, don't get me wrong. I, I would have loved to have seen just a, a prequel with Wallace the monkey. Uh, I, I would have loved that. Just a road adventure, yeah. right? With him and Darwin. But I, I don't know. It It's gut-wrenching, but it illustrates the sequencing that's happening for those characters at the end, where Roy is is basically if you think about the symbolism and you talk about the butterfly for change or um you you could say you know that's the soul or something of that nature as as he's going through that part of the story i mean he's basically tearing it down and letting his despair seep into all of that and you're you're seeing his view of his world come into that fairy tale and just annihilate everything in just the worst possible way and he's he's really trying to just um bring her into this cold, harsh reality that he thinks is good for her. Right. And and that's yeah. where that story's going. So I don't think it's unnecessary, but if you think about it, where this movie I think really just fires on all cylinders, I, I I think the whole movie is fantastic. But when you get to that end sequence, you understand how emotionally invested you are into these characters and how you see, you know, that 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 whole vision of Alexandria and Roy in total contest against each other. And it's super impressive to see. I, I kind of wish and we don't have time for this because the movie's
0: already two hours, but like the other characters just don't feel important when they die. I, I didn't feel it. Like they, we don't know anything about them except that they're all on this one mission together. And it's like, well, I was trying to figure out why there's five of them and not just one, not just, you know, Roy, uh, you know, is this some sort of his different like person, like, you know, going into like, are these representing different personalities or what are, you know, what are they, why are there so many? Um, and why do we not know anything really about any of them? Darwin, we kind of know the most, a little, it's just hard to say like, why, why, you know the one guy's an explosive guy so is that like his
1: you know, th- explosive finger
0: you know or something like that you know
1: yeah no I, I i'll put this out there and i'd probably need like somebody way smarter to dissect this for me but my feeling is those characters you're not supposed to know them as five separate characters those are iterations of roy and alexandria like each one it it's not that darwin is Darwin himself. Darwin is some piece of Roy yeah. in terms of how I mean, he tells it or some piece of how it. So when they die, it's actually killing pieces of themselves as they're going through that story, which is why she's getting so upset at that point of it. And, yeah, okay. and, and she realizes what he's doing and he realizes what he's doing. So it's almost like committing suicide. If he can't commit suicide in the real world, he's going to kill himself as a result through the story of going through all these characters and she recognizes that, that if, if that last character dies, then I think she knows then he's totally lost because that's him.
2: Okay. Yeah. I took, I took the characters dying, like sort of as a like Roy fighting his demons so that he could come back from his suicidal ideations and realize that, you know, there's, there's more to live for with life, you know, sort of like that, why black Swan res- resonates with me. It's like, you know, as an artist, as you're creating something, a piece of you sort of has to die in order for that birth to happen. And so that's, that's how I took those characters as, as dying. It was, it was part of his catharsis to be able to be like, I'm not going to kill myself. yeah, Right. But I do like Troy, that you pointed out that, you know, it, it's the collision of that, of her and him and the story and her, you know, and their journey together. Yeah.
1: Coming yeah. It's, through. it's crazy because there's not, I mean, you could say that there is an antagonist in the form of this villain, right? The governor. But at the end of the day, really this, <laughs> this movie is, I mean, it's really between Roy and Alexandria, like they're pitted against each other in terms of their view and where is this story going to end based on, is it her hope or his despair? And so there's, there's not really an anti- antagonist in, in the traditional sense. There is one for the sake of the story, but really the story of the fall is really whose, whose view is going to win um, with, within this fairy tale or, you know, yeah. where are they going to end in life based on what view do they adopt for themselves?
0: And I will also say, I mean, I watched this on Tuesday and I watched it again on Saturday night. It stays with you. Like it, I have thought about this movie a lot since seeing it for, I mean, I, I, so funny story. I had gotten this on DVD for, from Netflix. I think I saw a preview for this for something that I, you know, had seen on Netflix. So I was like, I'll put that in my queue and I got it. And I watched it, and of course, you know, I was dumb and didn't really put anything together. Um, but <laughs> now it's like, oh, I see all this stuff, and it really has stayed with me. And I've thought about this movie a lot. And I think that is because it's really kind of the artistry in it and in what it's trying to do. Like, I've thought about all that stuff more than, you know, like say a transformers film or something, you know, like <laughs> it, it, it is definitely yeah. going for something. And I think the artistry of it is at a, such a high level that I think you could commend it for that. <clears throat> I just wish the goddamn story was better, but you know, it, I'm not knocking it and saying it's terrible. I just like, it's just almost there for me. And I think the most disappointing thing for me is that it? It's swinging and it's hitting a lot of home runs. But every once in a while, it gets up and it strikes out. And I'm just, I'm not, kind of appreciating the home runs. I'm more fixated on the strikeouts. And I don't think that's fair. But it's because they stand out so much because everything else is so good um, that it, it's just kind of hard to get past those little bumps in the road for me.
1: Yeah, no, I, I would say, I mean, there's no such thing as a perfect <laughs> film. And we we throw it around, right? Like, oh, this is a perfect film. But at the end of the day, there is no perfect film. It, you're, you're coming to the table with a subjectivity lens that you're applying to everything that you're seeing. And, and you know, if the film is a numerator and you're the denominator, your output is probably going to be, you know, influenced just as much by what you've been through as much as what the the director, or the actor, or whoever's doing what they're doing on screen, right? So for you, you may look at this and go, I like all of this stuff, but I, I cannot connect with this piece of it. Perfect. I can look at this and go, ooh, this is not one I'm going to watch on a regular basis because this this really takes me back to a place where, and don't get me wrong, I, I would not trade any of those nights or any of, of my childhood for anything because it taught me more than I than I could have ever learned in any other way, but it's still a painful watch because after I'm done watching this, I get in a funk for a little bit where I'm like, okay, you got to get out of your head. Cause that was a rough 30 days and and that was a rough years growing up in those braces, but you're good now, right? You, you don't necessarily want to revisit it, but you revisit it because you appreciate what you got out of it. And I think this film hits that. So I don't know if, if Lee pace or, um, you know anybody associated with this film, screenwriting or whatever, had that same experience that I did, and they they were able to port it into the storytelling. It feels like they did, um, but yeah, I just I, I totally can get any kind of criticism on a story level. Uh, I don't know if I can get behind a criticism that says, "Well, it's just eye candy." When when you talk about a film that has layers and you peel back the layers, this is the perfect example of it, in my opinion.
2: Absolutely, I'm right. I'm right there with you, and I don't know if Tarsem is, is uh, listening, you need to buy the rights to your own thing and release it on some sort of criterion or something. I don't
1: know. I don't know. We, we need another update of this film. I mean, yeah, you this talk about, if, you talk about a movie that needs a 4k release. Mm, this sucker yeah. needs a 4k release with Dolby Atmos, all the bells and whistles, uh, like stat. Somebody's got to get a hold of this thing and, and do it justice. Um, Please God, I, I, and, and what's weird is I would have thought that this and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't see enough people writing about this film. I kind of thought this would have achieved cult status by now, but it doesn't feel like it has. Or do you guys think different? I think it's just hard to find. I, mean, I, I think that I hinders think it.
2: If it was readily available or ready, readily available to stream, I, it would have become much more of a cult uh, following. I think if those DVDs did not go out of print. Yeah. you know? Yeah. I don't know. Um, I just,
1: I feel like there's something waiting in the wings where it's like, guys, the reason why they're not releasing it is because such and such did this horrific thing. We don't want to be reminded of it. And it's like, oh, well, this movie's really good.
2: <laughs> I don't know. Trigger warning, monkey death. <laughs> at the beginning of the, at the beginning of the Blu-ray, it actually was, it actually said like David Fincher and Spike <laughs> Jones presents. present. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, those are two big names. You know why aren't people talking about this? I like, think I'm just I so think they
1: inspired. just lent their names only. They didn't have anything to do with like the production of it, for my understanding. Yeah,
2: I think it's like uh, like you know Quentin Tarantino Quintino presents, presents yeah. you know Switchblade Sisters, <laughs> or yeah, or something like that. Right, exactly. Yeah, but for a second there, I thought maybe because Fincher was a part of um, Steve. Uh, I think it's Golan, uh, propaganda uh films I, I thought maybe they would have
1: been issuing something but no
2: not not so
1: much yeah well do, i mean do you have any other uh thoughts or or themes or i don't know scenes that you want to highlight from a review perspective
2: i think i think we covered it but man those costumes i mean that bu- that beautiful black man in that in that getup with the horns and the, the, the chains coming down around his face in that and that body.
0: Are we talking to Woof? Oh, <laughs>
2: uh, hello. And then, uh, when she comes out and she, it, she's like, a it's the Lotus cap and it's, oh got the yeah, fan the fans And then she like splits it. And suddenly you can see her face with all the gorgeous makeup. Oh man. I could just veg out on just looking at the costumes,
1: like the assassins costumes, all of it. It's just, it's, it's beautiful. The costumes accentuate the landscape, which is weird. Like most of the time the the landscape accentuate, and it does, the landscape's amazing to look at from the background, but it's rare to see a film where the costumes are, are, they just blend in with everything. Like they just naturally belong, but yet they yeah. feel otherworldly almost. It's crazy. Uh, okay. Well, I, instead of asking, is this thing a bomb? I guess the biggest question is this sucker is so hard to find uh, it's not streaming anywhere, and and please don't do anything illegal. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, <laughs> but you can, if you can, you know, afford the premium price on this thing, you can find it on eBay. You can find it in the second market. But we've already talked about you know DVDs and Blu-rays going from anywhere from eighty dollars to two. Would you say Jose? Something went for two hundred some odd dollars.
2: Yeah, like I think it was like two seventy, 270, two two seventy nine, something yeah, like that. I,
1: I know there's an edition floating out there that has this postcard set that looks really cool that I'm kind of jealous Ooh. of. But uh, someone asked this question: Jose, is this movie worth sinking some major change in so that you could see it on your on your home theater system?
2: Yes. I I am in fact as we speak, I have eBay <laughs> pulled up. I'm hovering over <laughs> potentially by dropping some some bucks on this because yeah, I, I I love it. It is it is not a bomb. I think everybody should see it. It's
1: it's amazing. Okay. What about you, Brad?
0: I mean it, it has stuck with me and it is a film that you I guarantee you've not seen a film like this before. And I think that goes to be appreciated and yeah, I mean, I've spent $150 to $250 on way worse. So, uh, (laughs) yeah, I, 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 I think experiencing this to elicit some sort of reaction out of you, be it Troy's reaction or my reaction or Jose's reaction or your reaction to Wallace. Um, I think that's important. I think art is supposed to do that. And um, I don't know. You can't really put a price on that. And I think, yeah, I think you can. And I, as much as I, I have my problems with it, it's definitely not a bomb for me either. It's just, it's, it, it's made me think way too much. And even, even if there was nothing going on in this movie. And it was just the visuals. I would still say it's not a bomb because the visuals are easily some of the best things I've ever seen.
1: Yeah. I, I agree with you both. It's definitely not a bomb. Uh, I think it works on every level that it's trying to do. Uh, Tarsim is a mad genius on this thing. It, it's quite amazing. I, Even though I own the Blu-ray if there was another edition that came by and I saw it and it had a few more special features or that postcard set, I'd probably drop the change again, even though I own it. This, this is a film, though, that really kind of depresses me because I've seen it in a good home theater setup. I am dying to see it on something like the AFI big screen or the senator. Just uh, it, this to me is one of those films like this is why you go to the movie theaters because if you were to be in a theater and you saw this on the big screen, I think it would even have more of a visceral impact, uh, to your eyeballs because it's just so gorgeous to look at. Again, I would want the theater to myself because I feel like the only way I can watch this is by myself. But, um, yeah, I just, I, I, I think it's every it's worth every penny that they're selling out there. Uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm waiting patiently. We seem to have this thing that we'll talk about a film, and then next thing you know, they're like, oh, well, here's a 4K release. I mean, we we picked Staying Alive back in August or September, and then here comes Kino, and they're going to release the 4K this year. So what I'm hoping...
0: Sidekicks is on 4K. Sidekicks is oh on 4K. God. Here we go, Karma. Let's do it. So let's, get it let's get it out
1: there. I'm hoping this cosmic karma that seems to like, hey, you know, the guys talked about this film. Well, six months later, somebody's announcing some special edition. Um, I look, if it's going to happen, it needs to happen on this one. Like now. So, uh, I, I would love like something, some remastered
2: something or other showing at AFI showing at like the Alamo draft house followed by a physical media release, maybe even Tarson doing a Q and a or something like I, I would love that. I think it would be amazing. Yeah. And, and I was going to say, Troy, thank you, um, so much for sharing your, uh, your, why this film, you know, is such a experience for you. Um, I, I wanted to thank you for that story cause it's actually beautiful.
1: Well, I, <laughs> that's the cool thing it's about a beautiful it. I've, story. I, I've always loved about movies is, you know, movies for me, as much as you can appreciate it, I appreciate them more for based on what do I associate that with? So you guys were talking about, you know, when this came out, Indiana Jones in the, in the crystal skull came out the same month that I love that movie, not because of the film, but that was Cameron's first Indiana Jones film and we saw it and then he wanted to go back. So we saw it again and you know, you pay for the seat, but that kid only used like 25% of the seat because he was up front watching the whole thing. <laughs> and I remember out of the corner of my eye, there's an older couple. This is at show place East in Evansville, Indiana. And they kept turning around staring. And I, I thought they were giving me like a ugly look cause I'm taking, you know, my kid into a seven o'clock showing on a weeknight and as soon right. as we get done, they stop me and they go, "We had more fun watching your son watch the film because he was just into it." And I'm like, <laughs> "Oh, I thought they were going to yell at me,"
0: but that's the cool yes. thing about
1: movies is you can talk about the film and love it, hate it, whatever, and everybody's got their opinion. But it's cooler to talk about like what happened to you around that film or what that film made you think or or some kind of anecdote story to it. That that's why I that's why I mean I think we do this more than anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Brad, we got some listener feedback. We've debated this one. Um, we will probably go into more detail about this, but I thought maybe we'll, we'll read it. We can answer a couple of questions, but, uh, we'll find a way to do what they're asking. So here we go. Yeah. It's from our good friend. Jacob says, I enjoyed your conversation about your experiences in the ring. I think it would be great if you did a whole bonus episode just on those experiences, learning the art and using it in the ring. I love a history about your experiences. How did you start? Why? When did you stop? What was it like to train and learn? I'd find it very interesting from Jacob. Uh, I don't know, Brad, you want to give like the the elevator pitch for you? Yeah.
0: So I started boxing in college. Um, in high school, I played a lot of sports, mainly baseball and basketball. And um, once I got to college, I wasn't able to do that anymore. And I was a little bit lost. Um, and of course I was 18, 19 years old, pretty cocky, um, (laughs) needed some humbling. And so I met this person and kind of introduced me to boxing. And if you know anything about it, it is a humbling experience because, um, learning how to do it, um, getting basically beaten up for a long time before you learn the ins and outs of the sweet science, um, really kind of put me in my place and I needed that as, as someone who kind of was going through life feeling like they were above it all. Um, and so I, I appreciated that period of time and, um, yeah, I mean, I, I fought amateurly for a little bit, um, And, uh, loved every second of it. Um, you know, I wasn't the greatest or anything like that, but I, I, I loved it in, you know, there is something about being in the ring with someone and you're trying to beat them, but you're also trying to outsmart them. Boxing is to me, one of the greatest sports because you're playing your opponents Um, not only physically, but mentally, Hey, I'm going to let this guy come out. It's three minutes around. We're going five rounds. I'm let him come out swing for the first two minutes of this first round. He's going to get wore out. And then the next four rounds, I'm just going to pummel him, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that. It, it, it really was something that I, I took to very quickly. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it. um, But I I just kind of gravitated to it because out of high school, I was a little rudderless. Um, You know, you get to a point in your life, people are telling you, Hey, what do you want to do for the rest of your life? And I was like, I have no, I have no idea. Um, And boxing really helped me kind of find a way and kind of come down to earth a little bit, which what I need. I mean, I'm, I'm sure teenagers and early 20 year olds need, need that. and, It was a, it was a humbling experience that that I needed and um, I got it. But of course, when you start to like get into the corporate world, um, you can't go places, you know, with your meeting with important people and your both of your eyes are black and blue and your nose is a little crooked and all this stuff. So you kind of have to figure out what you want to do and, so I still do it, but not as much as I, I want to. I don't spar anymore, but yeah. Cool. Did you, did you uh, get into martial arts or anything, Jose? No, I ne- I never, I didn't go that far. Um, that was kind of. Well, that question
1: is for Jose, not you, but go ahead.
0: Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> okay. Sorry, Jose. You go.
2: So I was going to say, unfortunately, unfortunately, no, I still want to get back into that, but just, uh, just to piggyback off of. He, Brad, I had no idea. Hearing that you were boxing, that's crazy. Um I I did I did do for about 2 months straight regularly like these boxing workouts. That first workout, I swear to God, I literally almost threw up on the gym floor. Like if you've never done it before hitting a bag even just for 50 seconds straight in a row, I, I thought I was going to die. I don't know how you do that. That's kudos to you. <laughs>
0: well, also, so when someone's trying to hit you, your body clenches and you relax and you clench and relax. So you're always like tense and you have yeah. to learn to not be tense when someone's trying to hit you, which is really hard to train your body not to do. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Kind of that really helps you because your body is not in that state of. Flex, relax, flex, relax, flex, relax. Where you're, you know, you're essentially working those muscles when you
1: don't need to. Yeah, you never, you never want to take a hit when you're tense or mm-hmm. you've kind of inhaled. So I, I would. Yeah, think about
0: it like when you're in a car wreck. Yeah. When mm. you grab the wheel real tight. Yeah. And you have a wreck, you're always going to be hurt more. That's why people who are drunk and they get in wrecks are always – they, like, walk out of the car. They're fine. Exactly. Because they're, they're relaxed they're like, the whole time. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: We we, we would always – uh in, in the martial arts class, you could take a water bottle. And if it's totally filled up, never opened, and and drop it or throw it at somebody, it kind of hurts. But if you take the water out and it's halfway and you drop it or you throw it at somebody, it doesn't hurt as much. And that's kind of what they teach you with the breathing. If you take a punch, you want to exhale because you don't want to hold that in because it's going to hurt you more. So, um, that's what we learned in judo too. When you get thrown your, you and stuff like that, it's, it's all about displacement of the energy. And, uh, I, I mean, my, wow. <laughs> mine was a little similar to Brad. So growing up with Perthick's disease and being in leg braces, my parents would let me do anything. So when it came down to high school, uh, cause they, they had doctors that always said, Oh, you're not going to be walking past 20 or you're going to need a hip surgery at 20. And, uh, I'm like, okay, Uh, so the, the parents were very protective, but I got to try things out. I would just fake my parents' signature. So that's how I joined like the Wichita fencing Academy and stuff like that. Cause I was just trying everything, but it wasn't until I got to college where I'm like, well, if, if I'm not supposed to be walking in in my mid twenties or I'm going to need a hip replacement, I just want to try everything. So I tried everything, sports and what was funny. This is how messed up, uh, I love my parents. I do. But the one thing I did, the one sport I did get to play a lot of was racquetball and tennis And that's because the uh, Catholic priest liked racquetball and tennis. And so uh, he would always be like, well, I can take your son out. We go play. Oh yeah, go ahead. I I don't know what it was about playing a sport with a priest. And all of a sudden the parents are like, your legs are going to be fine. But God forbid, if I tried for anything out in school, they wouldn't let me do it. So I I played tennis a lot. That was the only sanctioned sport because the priest said it was cool. Um, (laughs) Yeah. let figure that out. Uh, but yeah, when it got to college, it was like all bets are off. I'm 12 hours away. I'll do whatever I want. And so tried all types of martial arts, but it wasn't really till, and here's a shocker. Uh, I got married right outside of college. Um, that didn't end very well. I walked in on something I, I shouldn't have and then ended up gaining like 40 or 50 pounds of depression. And then somebody mm-hmm. came along and was like, you'd be really good at Chinese boxing. Granted, I'm weighing like 250 or something at that point. My wife saw pictures of me at this time period. We were going through the photo album. She's like, who's that guy? And I'm like, well, yeah. oh, that was me. <laughs> like a couple of years out of college. She's like, no way. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Chang um, Kwan, uh, Chinese boxing specifically, just got my head straight. Um, to Brad's point, it grounded me. And it got me out of this depression. Um, I lost a ton of weight. And I got to about like 180, 185. Um, and then eventually it was, you have to go learn another art in order to advance. So then I got into judo and um, uh, karate and and then picked up kickboxing. And then I was doing some stuff on the amateur circuit and I was practicing with like cops and stuff like that. Uh, my last fight, I think we talked about it. I, wow. I fought outside my weight class. And here's, here's the thing. I wasn't necessarily great at it, but I could take a punch like nobody else. And so to Brad's point, Anytime I won, it was because I outlasted the guy. It wasn't that I was better. It was just that I I could hit pretty good, but more importantly, I could take a hit and not go down. And even my last fight when my fingers broke in the glove and everything else because I got hit so hard, um, I never went down, but I lost that fight. And that was the first fight I think Tabitha ever saw. And she was balling. But um, to Brad's point, I had landed this cool job. And uh, they they said you can't work here if you're coming up all bruised and I'm like okay yeah, think about
0: like the scene in Fight Club where he's like yeah.
1: blood coming out of his mouth and all that it wasn't that but but I would come with black eyes surprisingly I never broke my nose but the thing that I was more worried about um, in Southern Indiana they started to have and this is when uh, MMA was coming on the, the scene MMA, yeah. they had hook, mm-hmm. what a, what it was called hook and shoots and so I participated in a couple of those but never on the circuit. And I would train with those guys because the only thing I got in the ring for was kickboxing. Short little me with my legs, perthix disease, uh, um, because the, the way where you get your kicks in, and then I was a better boxer than I was kicker. So just get your number of kicks in, and then work the upper body, and that's how I got it. But um, the first time I ever saw somebody drain an ear, so cauliflower ear is when you get hit over and over again, and it starts to solidify. So what you have to do is when it when it like bubbles up. You got to take a syringe and get in there and get all that liquid out. So it doesn't harden or else you get cauliflower ear. Mm-hmm. So the first time I saw that I was like, well, I don't want to do this anymore <laughs> And the I don't want my ears looking like that, especially with this job. So I moved over to teaching and then, um, Kendo, I, I picked that up. So I, I, I dabbled in just about all the martial arts that I, that was available to me at that point. Kendo was the one that I found the most interesting, but to me it was the hardest, um, But yeah, uh, I, I train, uh, I don't teach my kids. (laughs) (laughs) I taught Angel some judo moves when she was younger, you know, just you want to teach them how to, well, Angel and Cameron, I taught just basic rolls and falls because you, judo's good about that, not sticking your arms out, right? So that's how you break things. Um, Angel, I, I taught a couple of throws, but she used them on some kids and we're like, we'll stop that. Uh, I always, yeah, it does sound just like Angel. (laughs) it is. That's amazing. Uh, I always wanted them to get into martial arts, but I, to me, it's one of those, you got to find it and you got to find it at your right life. And if my kids never do it, I'm not upset about that. As long as they still like Jackie Chan, Donnie and Samo Hong movies, (laughs) I'm cool. But, (laughs) but like to Brad's point, I mean it it was something that changed my entire outlook and perspective and even at work i will use a ton of things that i learned from martial arts from a thinking perspective um because that that helps me get through things but come to find out now that we know more like Perthick's disease and and like um that martial arts is one of the reasons why i have never had a hip replacement yet i mean i'm sure it'll come at some point Um, I walk with a limp every once in a while, but most of the time, if I keep stretched limber and I continue to work out, I don't limp. Um, and it's all about the stretching and keeping your core and the muscles tight, but that wasn't something they were talking about in the seventies. It was, well, let's put you on a pulley system in a bed or let's give you leg braces. Um, when in fact, as an adult, it's martial arts that's helped my leg out more than anything. Um, but yeah, I, we we may we may spend an extra episode and maybe pick our favorite martial arts films that uh I don't know, exemplify our experience. I don't know. We could talk more in depth about what we learned, but uh I would encourage everybody if you're if you're in a space where you're kind of like, Man, I don't know what to do. I don't care how old you are, I I truly believe one hundred percent martial arts is one of those things, both on a physical and a spiritual perspective, it can mend you. If if you find the right person or mentor to get you there, that's the important thing. Cause unfortunately a lot of schools today are about the aerobics or, or, you know, the, the kicking and the punching, the hitting and the contest and everything else. I was lucky to run across a couple of gentlemen that concentrated more on the spiritual aspects and, and to Brad's point, the strategy and the thinking and trying to reprogram your brain as much as like how to hit somebody in the face. So, and not get hit and not get hit yeah and not get hit. I wasn't as good at that part I I I was okay getting hit all the time so
2: <laughs> so kendo is the one where you you have all the the sort of like armor and then it's the it's the mm-hmm. stick
0: kendo stick yep. yep yeah okay got it, got it. yeah
1: very that very difficult fun. very di- it, it's it's fun it's grueling it's grueling but then even just sword work in general is uh, I have a lot of stories about that where they they taught us breathing techniques and stuff like that. And you're like, why the hell would you do all that? And you're like, well, they told us we had to do that. <laughs> but another another time. We could we could probably do a whole episode on like what was the stupid thing that you did because you thought you could, but uh, uh. yeah, breaking <laughs> bricks. I, I I will say the the thing that just threw me for a loop that I never thought I could do was punching through concrete and we had like these one-inch slabs. <laughs> the first time I did it and I, I went through I want to say three or four slabs. I fell through it. Like I, I went right through it. Like I was just going through butter because it was all you're practicing and training. And then when you're finally ready to do it, and if you get your head, right, it's, it's more about the technique versus the power. And then the thought, but when you do it, I actually fell forward, almost hurt oh, myself, no. not from breaking, but from falling over. Cause it, 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 I just went through so quick. It's really cool stuff. But again, strongly, strongly encourage everybody to, uh, <laughs> To to give the old martial arts a, a run. Brad, what we, this is crazy. We we did showdown in little Tokyo, total B cheese fest, Dolph Lunger and Brandon Lee. We come to the fall, which is art house. Where are we going next week? I have no idea. Well, no, I do know. Cause you I picked it. Know. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to say it or sh- should I? I'll, I'll I'll say the slogan deeds, not words. What are we oh, talking about? <laughs>
0: so we're traveling to 1982. How Needums Megaforce. Mega mm. Hell neat.
2: Um, brilliant stunt coordinator.
1: Yes, sir. <laughs> oh, and there's a uh, nice Blu-ray out there that was recently released. I think out of Australia through umbrella
0: umbrella is coming up, dude, oh,
1: man. I get on their mailing list, folks. They've got some amazing releases. And I want to say just in the first part of this year, I picked two films that umbrella put out that I never thought we see the light of day. Megaforce is one of them. When we were talking about like bootlegs and stuff in the beginning, my first edition of Megaforce was a bootleg DVD. Um, and then I had to find the Japanese Blu-ray print. Uh, and then finally umbrella puts out this amazing special edition. So there's, this one's a little bit easier to find and it doesn't cost an arm and a leg like the fall. But, uh, I don't know if this one's streaming anywhere. I think there's a mystery science theater version or Rift tracks version of it out there on Amazon. I think, I don't know.
0: Ah, yes.
2: Uh,
1: Uh,
2: is the umbrella all regions.
1: Yes, yeah. Okay. They got a box of Burt coming out here soon. I think yes. this month, uh, which sold out, which doesn't surprise me because it's Burt Reynolds. But I'm excited about that one. Uh, if Brad, if anybody wants to send us feedback, uh, Jacob, thank you for your question. Maybe we'll spend some more time on it. Go go to some funny stories in our past. But <laughs> if anybody wants to ask us a question, share their thoughts on the fall. Or even recommend some bombs. I mean, we we kind of got an open schedule for the second half of the year almost. Uh, how did they get hold of us?
0: Yeah, that's not a at gmail.com. You can also message us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff. Um, head over to notabompodcast.com and you can hit the contact us button and uh leave us a suggestion
1: there. Jose, watch Get plus. What's going on, yeah. man? You got you got some <laughs> epic stuff going, right? So you,
2: <laughs> you alluded to the five hour recording, jaunt that we did where we are doing our Oscar predictions. So that should come out Thursday. Obviously, the Oscar ceremony is going to be on Sunday. I think our next uh, film that we will be reviewing is something about a new ghost face thriller. Mm. <laughs> so Scream 6, I think, is what we're doing next. Oh, that's coming out this weekend, too, isn't it? It is I, for whatever reasons, I did not realize it was coming up. I, I thought it was going to be released later, but I don't know. I'm not so sold on the trailers with the whole like subway train thing. So I, I don't know those
0: using guns. I'm a little bit weird I, about I, I, I
1: don't know. I'm keeping an open mind is what's
0: those face of Batman.
1: Come I on, did not please. see the last one. I bought the last one, but I have not watched it yet. So I'll have to watch I it like this it. week.
0: Again, scream is my favorite horror franchise. Yes, like but did you one film that's like not great but still pretty good. But did you like Scream Three? Is what I did. I did. I, I I think it's fine. Yeah, that's the <laughs> one that I'm like. Eh, it's it's okay.
2: I I Aaron like them all. Krug, Aaron Krueger almost sunk that franchise. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I don't know why. I just haven't sat down to watch the the fifth one, but I'm gonna have to this week if I'm gonna go to the movies. Yeah. So you should. It's actually pretty good uh jose are you coming you're coming back for next week right i, I think so i think you're scheduled for, Meg- for next week yeah uh,
2: yeah i will oh yes okay. i am
1: just it sure we <laughs> yeah. love having you on and and i want to make sure you can come back because next one's gonna be a doozy i'm excited because angel's coming back for spring break and this is one of this is one of our fun films that we like to watch so she's excited yes. we're gonna watch megaforce so Woo-hoo. and it has a jackie chan connection we'll get to that next uh-huh. week
0: Oh, uh, Okay. Yeah,
1: okay. it's pretty cool. Uh, what else, Brad? What What other podcasts outside of Watch Skip Plus should people be listening to?
0: Yeah, uh, Gentlemen's Guide to Midnight Cinema, the VHS Files, Night of Living Podcast, Backlook Cinema, the Mixtape Podcast. There you go. Listen awesome. to all those folks.
1: Cool uh i don't know if you're listening in the morning the afternoon or evening thanks for stopping by thanks for listening to us talk about the fall yes it's expensive but go buy it we think you'll like it come back next week we're gonna have a lot of fun talking about um uh, ascots uh flying motorcycles um tight suits oh some very tight suits (laughs) the tightest yes yeah jack what does jackie chan have to do with megaforce you'll find that out next week as well so Uh, Stay tuned and we'll see you next week.
0: Don't lose your head.